0: Welcome to the podcast that takes you back in time to rewind and relive all things nostalgia in the world of professional wrestling. Get ready to go Beyond the Bell, Beyond the Bell. with your host, ring announcer, Sean Beckerman.
1: We have relived and celebrated one of the biggest promotions in professional wrestling history, World Championship Wrestling. And tonight, we break down the downfall. This edition covers the final installment of WCW 101, the history of World Championship Wrestling. We cover the dismissal of Eric Bischoff as the head of WCW, and in return, we welcome the arrival of of former WWF creative heads Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara to the promotion. Find out what led to the Bischoff-Russo era from NWO 2000 to the Millionaire's Club to the New Blood. We cover it all and we document the final days leading to the purchase of wcw by its number one competitor, the World Wrestling Federation and arch nemesis, Vince McMahon. All this and so much more as the final chapter concludes in WCW 101. Students, get ready as we cover the downfall after this quick timeout. As we relive the history of World Championship Wrestling, you can supplement your WCW experience with the High Spots Wrestling Network. What name is synonymous with WCW? The Nature Boy Ric Flair, of course. Well, on the High Spots Network, you can watch the shoot interview of a lifetime with the Nature Boy himself. Over 10 hours of in-depth interviews stories and so much more from the legendary 16-time world champion use the promo code btb in all caps and new accounts will receive one free month of the high spots wrestling network and gain access to over 2,000 hours of premium wrestling content relive wcw's greatest star on the high spots wrestling network
0: Welcome back to Beyond the Bell.
2: There was no showstoppers except Goldberg and Kevin Nash was running the company. I think Nash was being over his head. I don't think he really understood what it was like to be a booker. I think it was one of those things where he just kind of went, yeah, I should be the booker maybe I can convince Eric to be the booker. Eric, I want to be the booker. I want to be the booker. Okay,
1: you're the booker. Now what am I going to do? You got guys that are, are big stars like that. If they see an opportunity to take control of anything, they will. The NWL was a very successful idea of WCWs. And with the rising undercard, WCW flourished from 96 to 98. They were the number one wrestling organization in the entire world. ...producing millions of dollars in revenue from a company that was in the red for a long period of time. Eric Bischoff dug them out of a deep hole and now they were on top of the wrestling world. Now, we discussed in the last edition of WCW 101... ...what was the true cause of the downfall or what was the beginning of the end. Like mentioned previously... Perhaps it was Starcade 97, is where the beginning of the end all came about. Hollywood Hogan's creative power screwed up the ending to the main event of Starcade, quite possibly the biggest match in WSW history against the Stinger. The fans wanted a clean finish, but Hogan would not allow that to happen. You can say this big disappointment fueled the fans to look for other options now. And the other option was the growing World Wrestling Federation at the time. Hogan's ego also helped to hold down the -the on-the-rise superstars from getting near him. He had Eric Bischoff in his pocket, so to speak. They were best friends, and they controlled WCW. Hogan booked himself to defeat Macho Man just after Macho defeated Sting for the world title, and Hogan never lost it until July. During this time, the WWF gained heavy ground. The Monday Night Wars were closing in. Hogan was in too much control, and now, much like his debut in WCW, the fans were growing tired of Hulk Hogan, especially in the Hollywood Hogan persona. The red and yellow could not even save Hulkamania at this point. Wrestling fans were just sick of seeing Hulk Hogan on television in the main event spotlight. WCW was starting to fall. The double NWO idea, the two versions, the Hollywood and Wolfpack sides, wrestling fans were just getting sick of seeing the New World Order that was not working. It was overexposed on WCW television. The Goldberg win over Hogan was a big event, but a lot of damage by Hogan was done up up until this contest. After Goldberg won the title, Eric Bischoff put Kevin Nash in charge of booking WSW shows. There, you could say WSW started to really go downhill. Nash catered to his friends. He pushed anybody who looked like a rising star from an outsider's perspective. A good example of this would be Chris Jericho, who Nash you could say, in a sense, personally buried, because he was on the rise during his booking tenure. That allowed Jericho to sit out his contract and eventually join the World Wrestling Federation, and Y2J was born. He, right off the bat, started a verbal conflict between himself and the People's Champion the Rock. In WW, we saw little of Jericho on the mic in terms of comparison to... The main event stars we saw a glimpse of a superstar in Jericho but WSW did not give him the opportunity the nail in the coffin for Chris Jericho you could say would be the feud with Goldberg which never really came about and Jericho knew he saw you could say the writing on the wall he knew that WSW was not the place for his career he jumped ship to the WWF and his story would now become legendary and his career would be a historic one. Nash would then book himself to win the WCW world title at Starrcade 1998 in a lousy finish to end Goldberg's streak. The only interesting thing in WCW at the time was Goldberg and that streak and now it was over. Nash would then reform the NWO in early 1999. This was due to Scott Hall being involved in that main event match with Goldberg using a taser a stun gun to knock Goldberg out and cost him the streak and the title. And as we left off from the last edition of WCW 101, the finger poke of doom, where Nash laid down for Hogan in one of the most ridiculous moments in wrestling history. we
3: have got Kevin Nash and a shot at the WCW World Heavyweight title. The last thing we expected was for Hogan to wrestle here tonight against Kevin Nash, but why not? What? That right. about? All right. All right. what's going on here? What? what? What just happened here?
4: It is unbelievable. The new world heavyweight champion, Hollywood Hulk Hogan.
2: You know, that was Hogan, and that was Nash playing their own little games against the wrestling world. But well, once Goldberg's jets were cooled, was done. There was no standout. Everybody was just the same. And once everybody's just the same, might as well stay.
4: You can make a bunch of small mistakes, but you can make very few big ones. Otherwise, the nose on the plane goes down. And when that big plane starts going down, it's hard to pull it up. I'm the big heel that's working with all these guys all over the country. And I'm making one sixth of what they're making. I asked for a raise, and uh, I remember his, uh, his quote to me was, uh, I wasn't over enough to deserve one. You know, and I remember that off to the point, I said, okay, you want to see over, I'll go somewhere and get over.
2: There was no motivation to, to try and break free, and if you did, you were never financially compensated for that. And I was there to be the workhorse guy, to provide good matches, to keep my mouth
4: shut, and, and don't dare to get over. It was pretty hard walking out on a lot of money. That was guaranteed money. That was guaranteed in my pocket. It just got to the boiling point of, you know, I'm never going to get past a certain level. And if I want to be happy with myself and I know I got more to offer, I need to go somewhere else.
2: And I did. Anybody that really got to a certain level, people
1: started liking you, they would start to put the screws to you. And I never understood that mindset. Hogan as champ did not draw ratings, nor did the new NWO. Eric Bischoff would eventually be fired before the summer of 1999. And that's when the horrible ages, the true horrible tenure of WSW began. Bill Bush was put in charge, and he didn't do much to spark WSW back to the top. Sid Vicious returned to WSW during this time, and the focus was always around the Kevin Nash Macho Man Feud. Sid gained ground, at least in the Booker's minds, and he feuded with the returning Hulk Hogan. He came back to the red and yellow, but it only produced a slight rating spark, which went down quickly. This era also had the No Limits Soldiers versus the West Texas Rednecks, a totally embarrassing feud as well. Yeah, had Master P come in. One of the many flaws in WSW is their involvement with celebrities, strange celebrities. You had Dennis Robin, you had Carl Malone, which was successful in a certain time, but then they brought Master P in. It was a complete waste. He and his No Limit soldiers feuded West Texas Rednecks, which was led by Kurt Henning. The intention for this feud, or the storyline that was supposed to play out, was that the Rednecks were supposed to be the heels. In a southern-based territory of WSW, they wanted that the rednecks were being the baby faces and being cheered by the fans. They didn't want to see these No Limit Soldiers. They wanted to see their rednecks. Kurt Henning and crew made it work. Barry Windham, a part of this group, they made this corny and goofy gimmick work. And the West Texas Rednecks theme, Rap Is Crap, was a hit song in WW. The mess that the Summer of 99 created for WSW made Bill Bush go out and buy Vince Russo, Ed Ferrara, Bill Banks, and Terry Taylor from the World Wrestling Federation creative team just to help WSW's horrible favoritism booking style of the main event players. Bill Bush, some believe, saw the problem of weak storylines for the mid-carders, so he hoped that this new team would change the federation around. A new vision for WSW. Team Russo sure did better than any other WSW creative team in 99, but that's not saying too much. Russo had many internal conflicts with his raunchy booking style that began to drive him mad. We must point that Russo was not a booker, he was a storyline writer. Russo had no idea how to book wrestlers into a good feud, which the fans would like. He wrote the storylines. This was a big factor in why Russo was not a huge success in WSW. Nevertheless, the Russo era had begun in World Championship Wrestling. When uh,
5: Vince Russo came to WCW, the most I could see is he brought an extra $750,000 a year in uh, expense. At the time that Vince Russo joined WCW, they were looking for anything to give them a, a vest. They were looking for
2: ideas. he I'd come over to WCW and maybe was going to take WCW to a higher level. I think people thought Russo was the savior of wrestling because of what he did in WWE, but meanwhile, Russo had a filter. Russo had been so grand to run his ideas through. He came to WWE with full creative control, he had nobody to tell him what's good and what's bad. Anything that
4: Russo was involved with, I thought smelled like sh**. Anything he was associated with, I didn't like.
2: The guy was a three-trick pony. He really didn't have what he said he
4: did.
3: A lot of us thought Russo was there to uh, disrupt and destroy and finish
4: off the company.
5: Thought it was a conspiracy. I know now how they were successful because it was who was in charge. It wasn't them.
2: I believe he did try his hardest to to uh, overcome and to help out as much talent as he
4: could, but it just it just didn't happen. As things started to unfold and the things that were said about him were true, <laughs> and the aspect of he was a little bit off um, when it came to uh, the creative aspect of, again in my opinion of what the industry where it was going.
5: They needed for him to be better than he actually was. I think he was a creative guy and he did a lot of great things here. But I think that they didn't know the whole story.
2: That's when it started getting ridiculous. Then Negadeth is playing and then they got the Kiss guy. and Nobody cared
4: about any of these people.
3: You wanted the best. You got the best. The hottest band
4: in the world. Kiss! The lowest rating ever in the history of WCW at that point. Kiss, the four-minute uh, lip-sync segment.
5: I was less uncomfortable with that than I was with the David Arquette involvement into the WCW business.
1: Now, before we get into the details of this era, let's talk about before Russo arrived. Before he could even come into WCW, with his rather odd booking style, some firings and shakeups had to occur. Before Russo, Kevin Nash, like we said, was the head booker of WCW. His tenure would be from late 98 until when Eric Bischoff was fired sometime during the spring of 99. So Bischoff is gone, and Bill Bush was brought in to clean up WSW. Bush was a part of Time Warner, which looked at making costs more efficient. WSW was wasting a ton, so much money, because lots of money is an understatement at this point in time. So Bush was mainly brought in to make sure the talent was worthy of every penny. So some costs... Had to be cut. The problem with Bush is that he didn't know how to run WCW. Wrestlers found it very hard to trust him since he didn't know much about the business. Plus, for the fact that he let the group of the good old boys, so to speak, run the company at first. The good old boys means the likes of Kevin Sullivan and Company. After Bischoff was fired, we had lots of boring storylines. Some say it was too old style wrestling. Time Warner and Bill Bush began looking for something to spark WCW. That's when WCW noticed that the WWF did not quite sign their writers to official contracts. Vince Russo, Ed Ferrara, Bill Banks, and Terry Taylor were all working without contracts, and WCW began talking to Russo for the most part. Russo was the head writer at the time. Yes, head writer of the World Wrestling Federation and was reportedly getting burnt out from the added products of the World Wrestling Federation. Due to their popularity, their programming increased, especially the new SmackDown show, which came on the scene. Therefore, Russo was responsible for double the writing at a very similar pay rate. WSW talked money, in addition to backstage control of the operations with Russo on board, which he didn't have in the WWF. His role in the Federation was to be the head writer, which meant that he was the main man writing the storylines that was asked by the WWF booking staff, which comprised of Vince McMahon, Pat Patterson, Jerry Briscoe, Terry Taylor, Shane McMahon, amongst others. The bookers would give Russo and Ferrara, who was a good comedy writer at the time, their ideas, and Russo would translate that into written storylines. That's your little proof that he didn't make the ideas for the WWF, but he just wrote the storylines that were requested of him. That was his role. That was his job. But Russo wanted the opportunity to prove that he was a vital part of the WWF success and the Attitude Era. He wanted to be able to present his ideas himself instead of writing for other ideas. He wanted to stroke his ego by turning around the horrible WSW. He took the job. And he took it without notice in the WWF. Now, I'm in human resources, and policy, of course, would be if you're leaving to go to another job, you would hope to give two weeks' notice. Professional wrestling is not your prototypical business. Sure, you may have the corporate positions in Stanford, Connecticut, for the WWE, which require more of a corporate type of process, but when you're dealing, especially at this time, when they weren't even public yet, the WWF was just rising in the Attitude Era, Russo and Ferrara were without really contracts. And it was very informal in terms of how they dealt with Vince McMahon. Russo, f- feeling burnt out, decided to make the jump. He was going to leave wrestling entirely. But due to the fact of you know family issues, he wanted his family to be together, and uh, just feeling the overall wrestling biz- business weigh on him, he made a decision to leave the WWF and join WSW. That would put Vince McMahon over the top uh, to boot, leaving for the rival company, the company that you're trying to put out of business. Not only that, but you don't give proper notice so you can prepare for this transition. It didn't make those at the World Wrestling Federation very happy. Some thought he was blacklisted from the WWF forever. So Russo is now a part of World Championship Wrestling, as is his partner Ed Ferrara. WSW pay them hefty contracts. In turn, this put a lot of pressure on them to produce results. Russo tried to do some crash TV on his very first week in WSW, where he helped to book Halloween Havoc 1999. The result was a huge disaster. Russo tried to do shocking endings to already old-school-style book shows. This produced bad television. Before we get into his first Nitro, let's talk about what Russo had against him. For one, WCW just went through two long years of wrestlers telling the bookers what to do. Guys like Nash, Hogan, and all the other egos controlled the storylines. Russo now controlled the actual storylines themselves. And it should be the wrestlers also a part of those storylines. This created conflict with the egos of the top players. Second, WCW was competing to steal the WWS fans now and not to create a new fan base. So they wanted to take the fans that are currently involved in professional wrestling that want to watch the product and take them away from the competition rather than building a brand new fan base. Three, Russo kept the last bookers like Kevin Sullivan on his booking team. This, you could say, wouldn't be a good idea in hindsight. Four, he completely forgot and left Ric Flair out of the picture in WCW, which angered a lot of classic WCW fans. Five, after thinking that he was burnt out from two WWF shows, he has to do two WCW shows. Since he already was burnt out then, it would only get worse for Mr. Vince Russo. All of those factors doomed Vince Russo and the crew from the very start. They didn't really know it yet when they came on board. Their first Nitro was a booming success, when you look back at it from time passing. It far dwarfed the shows before it without Russo, but that's not saying much. It featured a more intriguing show than the old-school style we saw before Russo. This gave Channel Flippers more things to see in terms of new storylines. However, lots of complaints from old-school fans did occur, they didn't like the crash TV format in the WWF. He did do a pretty good storyline, however, with the world title controversy. It produced a pretty good storyline, which proved to be a decent start for Russo. But, like we mentioned before in previous editions of WSW 101, a, ra- a running theme for the fan base of WSW is that they liked the separation of companies. They liked the fact that they were the old school wrestling style of world championship wrestling as opposed to the entertainment flashy style of the World Wrestling Federation. That was the point of having two companies, to have the two different styles, have two different products and brands that you can enjoy at the same time. Now with Russo coming on board, some call it maybe WWF Light, as some say TNA is WWE Light at times, where now the entertainment, the flashiness, the robust... Edgy storylines were put into WSW, therefore, taking even more so away the old school wrestling style of world championship wrestling. The original fan base did not like that one bit. Bret Hart finally won his world title, a deserving one at that. Things seemed to be decent. Bret was now finally WSW champion. However, Russo kept pushing the envelope and did some crazy things leading up to Bret Hart's title win, and even after that, Russo did his creative control angle, which wasn't bad at first. He felt the pressure from Turner executives and higher-ups of controlling his creative storylines or creative ideas. He was handcuffed, in a sense, where he couldn't be as edgy as he wanted to be. Thus, the creative control angle came about. But, in a sense, the creative control angle got out of control, The idea was his thinking that he would eventually win the ratings war with this storyline, but that was not meant to be. He would use himself eventually to put over wrestlers. But before we get into all that, let's discuss the revolution. Russo promised to do more with wrestlers like Chris Benoit, Dean Malenko, Perry Saturn, and Shane Douglas. But in all actuality, he really put the screws to him in a sense. Russo put them in the revolution group to get them involved. Russo has done this with various factions. He did this with the New Blood, Misfits in Action. We would see even, especially in the future of WCW programming, where he shoves wrestlers who he doesn't want to have singles roles into groups to try to get them involved. Benoit kept getting better, and Russo finally decided that he couldn't keep up the walls that this guy was banging down. It was time to push him. Well, it was time to put him against Jeff Jarrett, which was his idea of putting someone over at the time. Now let's get into Jeff Jarrett. That is a whole other story. During the summer of 1999, the WWF booking crew had the idea of Stone Cold Steve Austin feuding with Jeff Jarrett for just a little bit. Stone Cold now, you could say in full Hulk Hogan mode, in a sense, refused to work with Jeff Jarrett. He did the same with Triple H and Mr. Ass at the time, who the WWF wanted to push as singles wrestlers. Jarrett was angered as a result. Stone Cold wouldn't let him get to the next level. Jarrett was becoming a very hot heel in the WWF, so to speak, but was getting held down, when you look at it from his perspective. Now, at this point, Jeff Jarrett's contract was running out. He was the current Intercontinental Champion. And some believe that it was this reason for Austin not to decide to work with Jarrett, for Jarrett to decide to leave the WWF to join, once again, WSW and Jump Ship to work with his friend, Vince Russo. Jarrett and Russo were great friends in the WWF. So, of course, WSW was a great fit for him, or so he thought. So Jarrett signed a temporary extension with the WWF to finish out his championship reign as he lost to China in a good housekeeping match where it sent him packing to World Championship Wrestling and Vince Russo. After Jarrett left, Bill Banks, a minor writer, hopped along to WSW as well. Terry Taylor shortly joined as well. But we still stuck in Russo was striving to push sleazy angles, so to speak. We're talking lesbian angles, which he tried in the WWF, but failed. Mud fights, and just some very raunchy angles. The standards and practices of Time Warner began to come into play. Anything on Time Warner is supposed to be family-oriented. Russo's storylines were certainly not that. Therefore, they clashed. But instead of Russo toning down his material, all he did was complain on how he wasn't able to be creative in WWF. Now, I think it's not hard to be creative. You don't have to be raunchy or edgy with uh, non-PG programming to be creative. Instead of trying to tone himself down, he became reckless, so to speak. He was unable to come up with toned-down storylines, so he pushed for for some very basically stupid storylines. Russo was frustrated with ideas so he reached out to the bottom of the barrel and pulled out the New World Order. The team consisted of Bret Hart, who was champ, Kevin Ash, Scott Hall, and Jeff Jarrett. They would later bring in the recovered Scott Steiner in to join the faction. But the fact remains that Russo only brought back the NWO because he was fresh out of ideas. Things got even worse for Vince Russo and wSW. His creative control angle got even more and more convoluted and confusing this was when roddy piper became involved at starcade 1999 it was bret hart versus bill goldberg with roddy piper as the referee in a bad moment in wrestling history russo tried to recreate the 1997 survivor series oh yes the screw job piper called for the bell when bret slapped goldberg in the sharpshooter it turned out an instant failure the month of January would become hell for Russo. Injuries took place everywhere. Goldberg drilled Hart with a vicious superkick during Starcade. So what does Russo do with his injured star? He books him in a hardcore match against the new commissioner, Terry Funk. Funk, by the way, was a last-minute decision for the commissioner. Russo promised a new commissioner one week without actually finding someone. Well, he did, as it was Ric Flair. Since Russo gave Flair no respect from the start, Flair declined Russo's offer, to no surprise. Russo should have watched who he screwed, because you never know when it would come back to bite you. Then, they wanted Goldberg to punch his hands through the windows on a limo. Yeah, that was smart, as Goldberg would now be out with an injury. Goldberg wanted the real glass, not the gimmicked one. And as a result... He destroyed his hand, and now Goldberg, your top star, was out with an injury. Then Jeff Jarrett got a bad concussion after he took a mean Jimmy Snuka splash off a cage. Add to this that the good old boys led by Kevin Sullivan was pushing for Russo to get fired. They had a reason. This was due to Russo not writing good material. Injuries really hurt Russo, you can't deny that. He was unable to push anybody else due to that fact. It really hit the fan the week before sold out in the year 2000, scrambling for competitors to fill in Bret's place as Bret Hart was out with an injury from that superkick by Goldberg, which would eventually lead to Bret Hart's retirement from professional wrestling. So they were scrambling to find Bret's replacement to wrestle Sid Vicious for the world title. Vince Russo had an idea. He was going to put in Tank Abbott, who at the time was a very hated man in the locker room, and did not draw any ratings whatsoever. He never did. The plan was to have Tank Abbott become the new world champion. Yes, Tank Abbott, WSW champion. Even Bill Bush thought that was a very bad idea, and then decided that it was time for Russo to go. It should be noted that the Nitro before Russo's firing held the first ever 8-10 Nitro. It produced a decent rating, but Russo was never able to live it out. This was a big move for WSW at the time, the right move. Before this, they were holding 3-hour Nitros. Very similar to our 3-hour Raws now. It was too much WSW product. So Russo decided to move it back to 2 hours, great move, and move it up an hour from 8 to 10 rather than 9 to 11. Smart move as you would gain an hour on the WWF as their Raw started at 9 o'clock. But Russo did not live it out. So after all of the bad booking in December... And the quick fix attempt Russo had at reviving WSW, he was fired right before sold out in 2000. Kevin Sullivan was then named the head booker of WSW. And that, my friends, really stirred the pot in World Championship Wrestling. So we are just days from sold out. And the card needs to be slopped together. And really fast. Sullivan had a few Russo leftovers a part of his booking team. But mainly, Sullivan was in charge. And that was a big problem, especially for one man, Chris Benoit. Why? Because Benoit stole Sullivan's wife away, Nancy. And she was also carrying Benoit's child at the time. Of course, that won't sit well with Kevin, who was using his clout for the past four years to hold Benoit back in WSW, so to speak. It was it seemed that way because of his, of this specific hatred. Kevin Sullivan never was a head booker for WSW, and this was his first chance at the job. Before, he was just a regular member of the team, and now he had final say on all storylines. Chris Benoit had no chance in hell, like Vince McMahon would say. But Bill Bush wanted Chris Benoit to be world champion, so Sullivan said... Okay, he gave the okay, giving Chris Benoit the world title at Sold Out 2000 by defeating Sid Vicious. Sullivan reportedly agreed just so Bush could be happy. He thought he would please Bush by making Benoit a champion and then de-push him after that. Benoit knew that this would happen and he told Bush that he was going to walk out of WSW if Sullivan was going to be head booker. Benoit worked the Sold Out show but with the support of Dean Malenko, Shane Douglas, Conan, Perry Saturn, and Eddie Guerrero. A protest or walkout was going to happen the following Monday night. Each wrestler would then ask for their full release, and each wrestler was then sent home that night. An explanation on how Sid's foot was on the ropes led to a vacant world title. Let's give some credit to where credit's due. Bill Bush did indeed give Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, Perry Saturn, and Dean Malenko their full releases when he didn't have to. He could have forced the wrestlers to live up to their contracts or actually get rid of Sullivan instead. Bush, not the smartest wrestling mind by any means, thought that Sullivan could make WSW a success and that the so-called, or now so-called, radicals, could amount to nothing in WSW, or so he thought. Shane Douglas and Conrad would back out of the protest and wouldn't be seen on television again until the second Vince Russo era, which we'll get into. Billy Kidman was reportedly going to join this movement, but he then backed out when WSW convinced him that they would give him a push. That push? Tori Wilson as your valet. Not too bad. It's nice to have a hot lady by the side, but where is Kibben's wrestling career to this very day? Even in the WWF, he still had a limited amount of potential or a limited scope of where he could make it in the ranks. Without the Four Radicals, which they soon would be called in the World Wrestling Federation, WSW's wrestling product diminished. Dean, Saturn, Eddie, and Benoit helped carry most of the roster to semi-decent matches and they made the show Thunder something to watch at the very least. Benoit and Dean especially had some good Thunder bouts, and they were easily the best thing to watch on the program. Thunder was immediately flushed down the toilet to becoming probably the worst primetime wrestling show in the history of pro wrestling. It was so bad that some of the dirt sheets slash internet wrestling sites stopped recapping the Thunder program. So what do you do with the world title? when someone weak-minded takes over WSW, who's always there to stir things up. Of course, that's one Kevin Nash, big sexy. For sold-out 2000, Kevin Nash defeated Terry Funk to become the new commissioner of WSW. Although the angle would lead to some really loony skits on Thunder, Nash used the gimmick to position himself to make Sid really look bad. Sid was the man to become the company's top star, but Nash wanted a piece of it early on. Sid would defeat Nash for the vacant WWE title shortly after sold out, but you know that crazy Kevin Nash. Sid won it on Nitro, and Nash, as the commissioner, was placed in a rematch at Thunder. Nash declared the title vacant since he's the commissioner, but Sid got the win again to win the world title for a second time. At the very least, you could say Sid's start as champion was not very strong. A major problem lurking around with Kevin Sullivan is that he liked to push his good friends. Of course. The biggest proof of that was the artist, who was a very close pal of Sullivan's. He won the Cruiserweight title in the revamped Cruiserweight title tournament after Oklahoma screwed the respect of that title. Who is Oklahoma, you may ask? It was a character that was portrayed by one Ed Ferrara who would stay on even though Vince Russo left the promotion this was a blatant copy or mockery of an impersonation of Jim Ross where Oklahoma was brought out with Dr. Steve Williams and they made fun you can say of Jim Ross's bells palsy bouts which took place as a part of being the play-by-play man in the World Wrestling Federation. Another very classless move, a part of the Vince Russo regime. And the Oklahoma character continued on in WW with him winning the Cruiserweight title, thus ruining the prestige of this title that was made so popular in the heyday of Monday Nitro. The artist was previously known as Prince Ikea. He dominated the division, despite most of his opponents carrying... Each match, no crowds reacted to him. None of the matches he wrestled were good, but Sullivan didn't care. The artist is his buddy. Guys like Booker T and the usual handful of others who worked and caught the attention of the crowd were forgotten once again. Coming into Super Bowl 2000, which was a terrible show by all means, WWE got Jeff Jarrett back from injury. Since WSW didn't have much of a heel other than Kevin Nash, a decent Jarrett and Sid feud was going to occur. But wait, we still have Scott Hall lurking around. The bookers love Scott Hall, and as a result, he was brought back. And they pushed him to the top of that feud. In turn, many thought that this push really shot down all the locker room morale. Wrestlers thought, I've been busting my behind for the past few years, and now this guy comes in, and he leaves, comes and goes as he pleases, and now he's pushed at the top of the card. The match at Super Brawl 2000 was Scott Hall vs. Jeff Jarrett vs. Sid Vicious, a three-way dance triple threat match for the world title. But a problem occurred. While touring overseas, Scott Hall ran into some problems with customs at an airport. Apparently Hall was not in the frame of mind to be on an airplane, meaning that Hall had a little something to get high in the sky without being on a flight. It was embarrassing for WCW and Time Warner to hear about, and the writing was on the wall for the end of Hall's WCW career. At Super Brawl, Scott Hall was actually injured badly at the hands of some stiff wrestling by Sid and was to be out for a few months. That allowed Brad Siegel to eventually gain control in WCW, to which he never let Hall return to World Championship Wrestling. The founding father of the NWO was now out of WCW. Sid retained his title, though, and Sullivan kept him as world champion throughout his run as WSW Booker. Although he was a stable champ, Sid also proved himself to be very boring as well as champion, basically in that nobody paid money to see him. Attendance was really dropping by now, and ratings were hitting rock bottom. WSW was totally showing an old image. This was by having some of the most boring feuds ever possible. We had the worst in Dustin Rhodes against Terry Funk, which was garbage, yet another Ric Flair vs. Hulk Hogan feud, which has been attempted way too much, especially in WCW, another Sting vs. Luger feud, which was about 8 years behind its time, just regular boring content, which is what Sullivan kept promising Bill Bush that would work. Jeff Jarrett would keep feuding with Sid, heading into one of the worst pay-per-views ever, Uncensored 2000. The overall feeling of the show was that it was just boring and that fit for all WSW programming. And by now, the WWF was far ahead of WSW in the ratings war. After reports of a horrible buy rate from Uncensor came in, along with the continued low attendance, bad ratings, and just an unhappiness in the locker room among most wrestlers, Time Warner execs had enough. They got on the phone and called back Eric Bischoff to run the company once again. He agreed, but... In all reality, he just did it to undermine the company so that he could eventually help to buy it, which he would hope to have done, but that didn't turn out quite as planned for one easy E. But now, with Bischoff back, he decided to bring Vince Russo back into the equation. Bringing back Russo meant that Sullivan was out of a job. Thus, The Sullivan era was over, and WSW did a one-week shutdown to revamp storylines heading into Spring Stampede 2000. They did an angle where all WSW champions were stripped of all their titles to reset the company, like you would hit reset in the WWE Universe mode in the WWE 13 video game. This left the great champion Sid without an even longer title reign. In actuality, Sid wasn't ever the same without the title until he returned around Starcade time. Russo and Bischoff would later say that it was a total mistake to let Malenko, Guerrero, Benoit, and Saturn jump to the WWF. Times were changing fast, as Russo tried his Crash TV format once again, which failed the last time around, but he decided to bring it back once again. Now, whether Bischoff hired Vince Russo to screw up WCW or to actually give himself the appearance that he, in fact, was doing his job, well, that's really unknown, ultimately, what Bischoff's goals were, his true intentions. It was rumored that Eric Bischoff was a part of a scheme to actually purchase WCW, which was backed by the Fusion Group. Russo is now back in WCW, After a very bad fight last time with the guys like Kevin Sullivan, J.J. Dillon, and all of the other good old boys who have been in the wrestling business for years, Russo was now, once again, back a part of the booking committee in WCW. The problem with Russo as the head booker of WCW, once again, like we said, he's a writer, not a booker. There's a great difference between both. So WCW decides to take a one-week shutdown so that Russo can write up long-term storylines. The thing is, he didn't write any long-term storylines whatsoever, as he improvised bookings like when David Arquette comes to town. And he made an impact in WCW that we will never, ever forget. Russo does a few interviews at this time as well. He stated that, "...I will never be on television again." It took him the first night on Nitro to break that promise, and Russo would try to be a regular character a few months later. But the first Nitro was creeping around the corner, and a lot of old-school fans were anticipating it because the Sullivan era was terrible. It was that bad. It was decided that WSW will reset all titles, which was intriguing by itself, like we mentioned. WSW also grabbed a lot of talent, which were available on the free agent market. Talents such as Sean Stasiak, Chuck Palumbo, and of course, Mike Awesome. With Mike Awesome, a lot of controversy occurred about his WSW debut. We'll go into more extensive detail about it in our next series, which will be a surprise for you fans. He apparently just up and decided to jump ship to WSW from Extreme Championship Wrestling. Awesome was supposed to jump Kevin Nash in an angle for the first Russo-Bishop Nitro, but instead... ECW gave them a call. After a few threats to sue, Mike Awesome was finally allowed to appear on WCW television, but not without a price. This was done in order to have Mike Awesome now officially on WCW television. After that, ECW heavily protected wrestlers from making any kind of jumps over to the major promotions, exclusively WCW. The first Nitro was actually a refreshing one in a sense. There was a long opening segment in which Russo let the good old boys know that he was in charge. Russo and Bischoff were on the same team, and they announced that they will help the New Blood defeat the Millionaires Club. But the true highlight of the night was with Sid. Sid was the current WSW World Champion, as he was for the most of the Sullivan era, and Bischoff had to get the title off of him. In an angle to start heat with Sid, Bischoff shot on calling him Softball Sid and he kept asking where his scissors were this is the type of stuff that Rousseau loved he let wrestlers shoot on each other from that point on Sid didn't amount to much in WCW, though, from that point on. From being the stable WCW champion, Sid accumulated some injuries, which he needed time off to heal. After losing in the mini-tournament for the world title, Sid disappeared from television. He would come back to join the new blood, turning on the Millionaire's Club. But then he'd never be seen again until he'd return to fight Scott Steiner at the end of 2000. The first Nitro had a few odd twists in it as well, one of which, they finally had Ric Flair and Shane Douglas feud. This was truly a dream feud for ECW marks, as Douglas had been running his mouth about Flair and ECW for the longest time. A new Hulk Hogan, yes, a newer one in street clothes who was feuding with Billy Kidman. Both wrestlers did some evil shoot interviews on radio stations to get this feud over. Finally, Sean Stasiak debuted with a Mr. Perfect-like gimmick, and he distracted Kurt Henning in his match. It was different, seemed refreshing, and maybe there was some hope for WCW after all. Spring Stampede 2000 came along, and this sure was a rushed pay-per-view. There were approximately over a dozen matches on the card for a three-hour show. Jeff Jarrett would win the World Championship Scott Steiner Fresh off some bad incidents during the Sullivan era, won the US title. Chris Candido now with the company, with the returning Tammy Sitch, won the Cruiserweight title. Buff Bagwell and Shane Douglas won the World Tag titles, and the returning Terry Funk won now the Hardcore Championship. The evil new blood aimed at Terry Funk, since he was the only old-timer with the title. Candido and Sitch didn't last quite that long and they were soon gone from the company. A week after the pay-per-view, Diamond Dallas Page defeated Jeff Jarrett for the WSW world title. For their rematch, it was announced that they'd fight in a three-tier cage match at Slamboree. This was very similar to the three-tier cage that displayed or was featured in the new movie Ready to Rumble, featuring David Arquette and the WSW superstars. That was just simply awful. And then a day later, at Thunder, they invited the star of Ready to Rumble, like I mentioned, David Arquette, to do a match involving Jeff Jarrett and DDP. The match was DDP and Arquette versus Jarrett and Eric Bischoff, with the one getting the pinfall, winning the WCW Championship. Looking at it in hindsight, you could say this was the pinpoint move or decision that was the worst in Russo's booking era in WCW, as somehow, some way, David Arquette pinned Eric Bischoff in this match. Obviously, someone forgot to mention that only Bischoff or Jarrett could only win the title off of a pin and not the world's champion tag partner, but no, Arquette could win by just helping his team win the match. Arquette won the WWE world title in probably the most embarrassing moment in pro wrestling history. David Arquette with the acoustic equalizer just took out Diamond Dallas Page.
5: He's a very talented actor and funny guy, but, you know, come on. Are WCW champion?
2: I don't think so. I love David man. As long always it made sense, I don't care who had the belt. You know, everything is temporary. It was,
5: uh, it, I don't know what to say. You know, a joke? Yeah, okay. It was a farce. It was embarrassment, athletically. What it meant, you know, for the title, definitely might as well throw it in the trash can. Nothing against David Arquette, but yeah, you know, he didn't deserve it. We didn't deserve it, that happening to us. But there again, that's the a lack of leadership.
2: It was almost like the three stooges of wrestling. Just these bumpkins and these simpletons. Running this multi-billion dollar company. And Bischoff is not a simpleton. But something was happening where he was not paying attention. And everything started collapsing because of it.
1: WSW lost a lot of respect for this move. This was due to a lot of old school fans. Who liked the prestige of the world championship. They thought it meant something. Wrestling should mean something. Your company should be behind your main title. Or any title that is what drives business, or it should be. Russo did not care for it one bit, which was a huge miscalculation on his part.
6: It, 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 it boggles my mind how the truth is never told. And it, it, if I'm lying about any of this, I, lightning should strike me right now. We had David Ken in the building, and the show was already booked. Okay? Tony Shabani came up to me. And said, Vince, let me let me let me throw something at you. And I said, What? He says, What if David Arquette won the WCW title? Now, when 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 Shivani said that to me, my eyes and ears really opened up because I had never even considered that. I had that had never even crossed my mind. And when Shivani said this, I'm like, What? He says, you know, what if David, somehow, someway, David Arquette came out with the belt? I'm like, well, shit, bro, I I never even saw that coming, okay? So now I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about it. Obviously, it was in a tag match, and Bischoff was in the match. So Arquette didn't have to be a wrestler. That's number one. Number two, it was also at a time where we needed people talking about us. So now I'm saying, well, shit, this could be a hell of a publicity stunt, you know? If people, if David O.K. can get us some press, blah, 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 blah. So now the part you don't hear is, now the committee uh, of about 10 or 15 people gather again. So now I throw out this idea that Shivani gave me. Oh, shit, 15 people think it's a great idea. Everybody in that room thinks it's a great idea. Not one person in that room said, Vince, what, are you out of your mind? Hey, oh, great idea, great idea. Okay, so we go out and do it. Was it going to be actually workers, or were they were they just... Talking? Oh, no, no, agents, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. you know, Bischoff was there, you know, I mean, the agents, you know, the, 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 the regular people who were involved in the creative. Not one negative, nothing. So uh, we go ahead and do it, okay? Uh, another thing, a couple of other things people fail to talk about, because, again, they're not looking at it from the entertainment aspect, they're looking at it from the wrestling aspect is... The following day, there's a picture of David Arquette winning the WCW title in USA Today. Now, i have to guess if Paige won the title that night, I don't think his picture would have been in USA Today. Following week, okay, Courtney Cox, Kurt Russell, uh, Kevin Cosner shooting a promo free of charge for WCW to play with David Arquette in the WCW title okay you couldn't pay any of those people right. to cut a wrestling promo they did it for free so as far as the publicity stunt that i had in mind would it get everybody talking it sure as hell got everybody talking and you know what people can hate me for it i would do the same exact thing tomorrow i'm not sorry that i did it it worked it did exactly what we wanted it to do and those people that think that wrestlers really win the belt right. and they have a big fight and then they win the belt. As far, I've been in this business for 10 years, I've never saw anybody win a belt. I've seen a lot of people been given the belt, but nobody actually wins the belt. And again, for entertainment purposes, the publicity stunt, people talking about WCW, it sure as hell got people talking about WCW.
1: After involving David Arquette in the Slamboree three-tier cage match, vans really began to disappear in WSW arenas. They became empty, and ratings were going back to the Sullivan era success. Arquette actually pulled an evil heel turn at Slamboree, if you actually cared, and Jarrett was champion again. Russo defended this move, stating that this was done in order to gain the attention of mainstream media. Instead, it caused the WCW fanbase to run away. But Russo did have something good going for him at the time in WCW. He had the cooperation of Hulk Hogan, who held out during the first Russo era. Or did he? Under the new gimmick, which seemed he was kind of like stole Cold Hulk Hogan, the F-U-N-B, going against the new blood, dressed in all black and jeans with a open work shirt, he was going after Billy Kidman and, oddly enough, Mike Awesome. It was actually exciting to watch, in a sense, because we saw a new guy in Billy Kidman getting his break, or we thought his break, in WCW. It was initially, should I say, interesting to watch, but soon it fell, and it fell fast. Hogan never let any younger talent go over him in WCW. Therefore, him working with the younger talent, especially a former cruiserweight, was something different. In a sense, special for WCW. It seemed he would do something different in his career, especially in WCW, and work with Billy Kidman. It seemed to be going pretty well for Kidman at first. Hogan had other plans, though. They seemed to be devious, if you're looking at it from an outsider's perspective, but no one knows truly the real story behind Hogan's motives. Hogan, of course, like we mentioned, had the creative control clause in his contract. Well, with that, he let Russo control his storylines with Kidman and Awesome. But there was a catch. For all of the hard work with Kidman, Hogan's real goal was to grab the world title, of course. Reports were surfacing that Hogan actually didn't care for Russo's storylines at all. In fact, many said he dogged Russo behind his back. Hogan was waiting for the right opportunity to capitalize on the weak Russo, or so he thought. So for the final match at the Great American Bash 2000 against Kidman, Hogan creatively added that if he won the match, he'd receive a title shot at the next pay-per-view. Hogan won the match, of course, so he was to receive a title shot at Bash at the Beach. Rousseau had other plans, but there was nothing he could do about Hogan at this point. He struck a deal with Hogan to work with Kidman, And he was about to pay for it. So, leading up to Bash at the Beach, Russo decided to strike a deal with Hogan. Russo wanted to do some kind of angle of company man versus top wrestler, just like Vince McMahon versus Steve Austin. It was working for the WWF. Russo, however, took a few weeks off leading up to the show. Hogan did as well. While off, Terry Taylor was in charge of the show, and he made some very significant changes. For one, Taylor pushed Booker T like never before. No more G.I. Bro, a part of the Misfits in Action. Another terrible combination of wrestlers. I don't want to say the wrestlers were terrible, but this group combined was a terrible idea as they renamed these stars as well. And Booker T turned into G.I. Bro, a terrible idea that proved once more that WSW lacked focus. Mm-hmm. He wasn't even just Booker. They took the T away in a storyline as well for Booker. And no more being held down. Booker T was back and rose. at the, He was dying for this opportunity and rose to the occasion, and the fans took notice, so when Russo came back, he had to take notice as well, and when he went with the flow and decided to finally give Booker T a shot himself, Russo's new plan with Hogan was to have him defeat the willing Jarrett and then have Russo shoot on Hogan. The final plan was to have Booker T and Jeff Jarrett fight over the title, but the real story was supposed to be the Hogan-Russo feud to be the biggest storyline for WSW, but that didn't happen. You see, instead of doing the feud, Russo didn't even script anything for Hogan. With Hogan, which many of the other bookers or company presidents didn't realize was that they could just not include Hogan on the storylines. It needed to be approved, said the Hulkster. Now, this refusal of Russo to script anything for Hogan was in all actuality a double-cross after Bash at the Beach 2000. As we saw Jeff lay down for Hulk Hogan in the middle of the ring. This shocked everybody, and I think Hogan in all actuality. In turn, Hogan put his foot on Jarrett and was then crowned WCW champion. After winning the title, Hogan claimed that Vince Russo was the cause, was the reason for the company being in the shape that it's in. He walked off, Russo came back shortly after inside the middle of the ring on WCW pay-per-view and announced the death of Hulk Hogan in WCW. He said, as long as Vince Russo is a part of the company, they will never, ever see Hulk Hogan again. Whether it was a shoot or a work, this was a monumental moment in WCW, as that was the last we would see of the Hulkster in WCW. He filed a lawsuit shortly after, and we really thought this was the end for Hulk Hogan. Would the WWF take him back? Go back to the Hulkamania Chronicles to find out that part of the story. As much
3: as you won't admit, Madden, you knew that Hogan would make it back here to Bash Beach. the Oh, no. I I knew he'd never, ever miss a big pay-per-view payday. What's, what's Jeff doing? A a what's Jeff doing? Is it Halloween go over again? Hold on a minute, Russo, Russo, I think, told Jared to lie down. What's going on? Look at what is going on? They just threw the whole title
4: to Hulk. That's why this company's in the damn shape it's in because of bullshit like
6: this. And I promise everybody or else I'll go in the damn grave. You will never see that piece of shit again.
5: It wasn't in respect for the business.
1: WCW continued to roll on, and in the main event... They decided to crown a new WCW champion. They brought back the original World Heavyweight Championship belt with a slight bend at the top of it, and the match was set for Jeff Jarrett versus Booker T for the WCW World Title. The big gold belt, even bigger than the one Hogan walked off with, was on the line. Booker T won the match and became, for the first time ever, WCW World Heavyweight Champion. He fulfilled the dreams of many... Who thought he deserved it? With Russo's second run, he made a lot of stupid mistakes. One, he decided to put Chavo Guerrero, Van Hammer, Hugh Morris, and Lash Drew, like we mentioned, to form the fun loving Misfits in action. If that wasn't bad enough, he gave each wrestler a funny name, like I mentioned G.I. Bro, you know, uh, Hugh G. Rection, or General Rection get it, huge erection, or general erection, terrible. Chaval Girl became Lieutenant Loco, Van Hammer became Major Stash, General Erection, you could say, topped it all off with G.I. Bro, and let's not forget, Lash LaRue became Corporal Cajun. The funny thing with Van Hammer was that he rejected the name Private Stash, and he never really was truly excited about the angle anyway. Hammer would be sent home for acting inappropriately backstage, and was replaced by The Wall. The Wall would become Sergeant Wall in which announcers like Shivani Tanay and Mark Madden, who were now the three-man booth, as Bobby the Heenan was now pushed out as being too old to be a part of the new WCW, they actually said, do you get it, wall. Team Canada was another terrible, terrible idea. Initially, I thought there was some promise for the group. I don't like the idea, but it was handled very, very poorly in WCW. WCW's recent purchase of Lance Storm at the time was a good deal indeed. And from the start, you could see that Storm made the right decision to leave ECW to jump to World Championship Wrestling. He was carrying matches well from the start. He was pissing fans off with his established Canadian attitude, and it was working. He became a solid, popular in terms of hated heel. It worked so well that he would end up winning the United States title in a vacated tournament, to the surprise of many. Storm also won the Cruiserweight title, and he gave it to a guy who claimed to be a Canadian in Elix Skipper. Skipper, who never has really lived in Canada, claimed that he played in the Canadian Football League. Despite that, Skipper made a good partner for Storm, until they had to fight the Misfits in action. Back to the world title picture. Kevin Nash bought Vince Russo at the end of the summer in 2000, and convinced Russo to let him feud with Booker T., it wasn't a bad idea, you could say, until Nash tricked Russo into giving him the world title at Nitro. Was it a trick? Was it a plan of Russo's? Nevertheless, it happened. Nash was now once again champion in WSW. But instead of hyping up the match at the pay-per-view between Nash and Booker, they had to do the underdog angle again, with Booker T trying to beat the tough champ in Kevin Nash. Nash then lost the title cleanly at Fall Brawl that year. A week later at Nitro... Vince Russo decided that it was time for him to win the WCW world title. Yes, maybe Kevin Ash had an influence somewhat in this decision. No, I don't think so. Vince Russo decided to become WCW champion. Yet another black eye for the world title. Even more so after the David Arquette scandal, becoming champion now. The booker, head writer, now head of operations backstage. Vince Russo was... World champion. Russo made the title vacant the next week, making Jeff Jarrett and Booker T fight for the world title again. Why was this done? To get gain more viewerships that's what Russo states, but what was really the point? It just brings or brought down the title even more. Booker T won back the world title, but like with what Nash did before, his credibility was shot. Even worse, WCW was letting him use the bookend as his finisher which was a rock-bottom imitation, some say, and the WWF fans saw it as that. They just saw Booker T as trying to mimic The Rock, even though Booker wasn't intending to. It just had the perception to the outside fan that this was happening. Booker was mimicking The Rock. WSW was trying to mimic the number one company, the World Wrestling Federation. But before we continue on, let's talk about Bill Goldberg. Just a little after Russo came back, Bill Goldberg came back as well. He would wrestle in limited action, and then Russo got the idea that fans no longer cared for Goldberg whatsoever. Don't know why, that's what he thought. So Goldberg was turned heel at the Great American Bash. So you take the streak of Goldberg, the prestige, you had this huge baby face, the WWE fans love Goldberg, and you turn him heel against his fan base. Goldberg didn't know how to play heel. The whole thing was a disaster, and they slowly turned Goldberg face once again. They changed his music. They had more of a rock theme to him. It didn't fit the Goldberg character. Bill Goldberg did the wonderful streak again, since that was the only angle or gimmick that Russo could get him to agree on, and Goldberg would do the streak until he ran into the likes of Buff and Lex Luger at the new WCW pay-per-view, Sin. It should be noted that Buff came back after being arrested for assault on a Time Warner employee, and Lex Luger was sent home for refusing to work with the very young or green Chuck Palumbo at the time. Russo's mind began, or his body and mind, began to take a toll on him. He received a bad concussion from wrestling in some stiff matches, and Russo suffered from post-concussion syndrome as a result. He wasn't able to be on the Australian tour, so Terry Taylor and Johnny Ace fought over Russo's power to land down under. Johnny Ace, by the way, was brought in by Eric Bischoff, who snatched him from the All Japan shakeup. Russo would never return to television after this, as his condition wouldn't allow another comeback. So Terry Taylor and Johnny Ace fought over power for a few months. Until December of 2000, Russo's right-hand man Ed Ferrara became head booker. It's not like it made a difference, really. Booker T and Scott Steiner were now battling over the title until Scott finally won the title at Mayhem, another new WSW pay-per-view that was promoted with the video game Mayhem. A thing to be noted that it seemed like all the traditional pay-per-views of WSW were changed. Sin, greed, mayhem were replacing the old vintage or classic WSW pay-per-views. Steiner would then face the returning Sid to an interesting feud. In actuality, Ferrara booked a masked man to attack Scott Steiner... ...only to help him defeat Sid at sin. But there was a historic moment to take place at the end of this match... ...as Sid went for a bicycle kick off the middle middle rope... ...and in turn broke his leg. It was almost as horrific as the Theismann injury... And Steiner won after a kick by Animal. It looked pretty scripted, for lack of a better term, because what could Animal do with a superstar in Sid with a broken leg just laying there? So he kicked Sid, and Steiner would win the world title. So the big reveal at the time was Road Warrior Animal returning to WCW. But while all this is going on, Eric Bischoff and Fusion are trying to make a deal with Time Warner to purchase World Championship Wrestling. But the intention was to keep WSW Television on TBS or TNT. A small deal was accepted between the two, and Eric Bischoff was placed in charge of the company again. With that, Rick Steiner returned out of nowhere and was main eventing WSW shows. Johnny Ace was placed in the head booker position, and... Then it was announced that Fusion and Time Warner could not strike a deal. The AOL chairman announced that Thunder and Nitro were to be cancelled after March 26th. With the cancellation of WW's programming, what would be the future of World Championship Wrestling? Is the company worth anything without television? Now I know you WSW fan out there is wondering what happened. We're going from possibly you know Bischoff coming back, being in charge of the company... Russo now out. How did this all happen? Let's take a step back. Hulk Hogan, as we mentioned, filed a defamation of character lawsuit against the company. It eventually was dismissed in 2002, but we're talking now the year 2000. Bischoff vanished in July of 2000, and Russo was gone from WSW completely by late 2000. So Terry Taylor was left holding the reins at this point. While all this was happening, Time Warner bought out Turner's cable empire, in 1996. It also purchased WSW, even though Turner was faithful to the professional wrestling shows on his stations, as the professional wrestling program had helped Turner's very first TV station, WTBS, get off the ground, as we mentioned, and WSW was, in fact, the modern incarnation of the promotion that Turner had run on TBS back in those days. Regardless of whether it was losing him money, Time Warner did not share his loyalty, especially when Accounts show that WW was losing between 12 and $17 million a year because of its decline. However, Turner was still the single largest Time Warner shareholder, and WSW was supported at his behest. So when AOL merged with Time Warner in 2000, Turner was effectively forced out of his own empire. The new AOL Time Warner finally had the power to auction off WCW, which they saw as an unnecessary drain of resources. Now, Turner not being able to defend WSW left them out in the cold, especially when they're losing money. They had no power over the company. There was no direction. Bischoff was put in charge and was trying to purchase the company. But when it was announced that they would pull WSW programming from TBS and TNT, his investors, in Fusion didn't want to support him and invest in WSW. They felt, what is the company worth without television? In late 2000, Bischoff and a group of private investors calling themselves Fusion Media Ventures inquired about buying WCW, and indeed a deal was reported to be in place. However, Fusion backed out when Turner Network's head and the WB founder, Jamie Kellner, formally canceled all WCW programming from its TV networks. With no network to air its programming, WW was of little value to Fusion. It was dependent upon Turner Network's continuing to air WCW programming. WCW lost all leverage in this battle now, and so, in turn, did Eric Bischoff. So, on March 23rd, 2001, all of WCW's trademarks and archive footage, as well as 25 of the lower-tier to mid-card wrestler contracts, were sold to Vince McMahon and the World Wrestling Federation Entertainment Incorporated the World Wrestling Federation Entertainment, the WWFE, on the stock market, was purchasing WCW. The WWE had purchased their competition. Vince McMahon now owned World Championship Wrestling. A gloating Vince McMahon opened up the last ever episode of WCW Monday Nitro. It was simulcast with Monday Night Raw on March 26th, 2001 he had a self-praising speech as he finally felt victory over his opposition the world wrestling federation now owned its competition u.s champion booker t cleanly defeated the world champion scott steiner to become the final united states and world heavyweight champion in wcw sting took on rick flair in the main event in which Sting won and was the highlight nostalgia match of the final broadcast. It ended affectionately with a respectful embrace between the two. When the WWF bought WCW in March, several top WCW wrestlers including Ric Flair, Goldberg, Kevin Nash, and Sting had high-priced contracts with AOL Time Warner that the WWF was unwilling to pick up. WCW was not seen as a powerhouse organization invading the WWF when most of their top stars did not appear. Therefore the hopes for a dream invasion of WCW in the World Wrestling Federation was lackluster to say the least. I'll never forget when I heard Vince had bought WCW.
2: When I first heard Vince McMahon was buying WCW I didn't believe it. None of us did. We'd heard 15 different stories about what was going to happen You know. This group was going to buy it this week, then this group. And we'd heard that WWE had bought the company, but we weren't sure. Nobody was really sure um, until Shane McMahon walked in that room. And he walked in now and I was like, okay, well, I guess this is it.
3: Welcome to a landmark night in sports entertainment. I have seen it, and I still I, cannot believe it.
2: I didn't watch the show that aired from Panama City when WWE took over. I couldn't.
3: We are stunned, we are floored. We are going to be addressed by Mr. McMahon here tonight on the very last telecast of WCW Monday Night
4: The very fate of WCW
5: is in my hands. It's kind of cool the way we did that, whereby Shane shows up, you know, running WCW. And all of a sudden, we're able to go back and forth. Uh, which I thought uh, the audience did not know was going to happen. I thought it was a pretty cool night. I
3: now own WCW.
2: That last Nitro in Panama, there was there was a lot of fear for a lot of guys. As far as we're concerned, that last night in Panama was going to be our last match. I was actually scared. I was scared because I didn't know if I was going to be left out of a job or not.
3: What must be going to the mind of Rick Flair?
2: That place needed to be shut down
5: a year before it was. It was terrible. I was embarrassed to be part of the show. We had no parade. We had no celebration because they went out. We it was another day. I didn't feel any, you know, ego boost of way to go, events. You know, you crushed them and now you own them and all of that. I look at it as, um as business as usual. You know, this asset was available uh, we got
2: what I thought was to be a great deal when I heard what he bought it for I said I wish I would have known because I would have tried to buy it for the money that he bought it for I could have afforded it but yeah when Vince bought WCW that was the end of an era I was you know
4: elated that they sold but do I think if the business would be better if we had two companies it would be great
2: I thought it was horrible for the business you kill your competition What's it do to the marketplace? Not the best time for a performer in this business, because you could always go somewhere else. If you didn't like WWE, you could go to WWE. If you didn't like WWE, go to WCW. know, you can get treated fairly financially, if nothing else.
1: The ending of Nitro surprised us all, as Shane McMahon came out on WWE Programming and announced that he is the McMahon that signed the contract and that he owned WCW. Backstage, the wrestlers were unsure of their futures. They thought this would be the final time they'd be all together and with jobs in the wrestling industry. They only—they knew only a certain amount of superstars or wrestlers will be picked up by the World Wrestling Federation.
3: Listen to that, would you? That could only mean one thing. Who means more to WCW? Who means WCW anymore? was identified with WCW more than any other, the man stepping into the ring, the 13-time World Heavyweight Champion, the one and only, the Nature Boy, Rick Flair. What are his opinions of the statements from Mr. McMahon earlier? Maybe. done for so long. We talked about new ownership of WCW. We never thought this would happen. Neither did he.
4: the palms of his hands. Is that what he said? Does that mean that you are gonna hold Jack Frisco, Dory Funk, Harley Race, the Road Warriors, Stig Luger? to coin a phrase I don't think so you know at 12 o'clock today someone very special to me said do not go on that show tonight knowing it's the last time that you'll ever be on TNT or TBS knowing it's the last time she said to me don't go out there and cry don't go out there and say you're sorry because i'm not i've been 14 times the world champion in my eyes for the greatest you got it the greatest wrestling organization in the world we I'm talking about the Stings the Lugers the Steiners the Road Warriors I'm talking about my best friend Art Anderson and the Four Horsemen we have been on a par and we have been equal to any wrestling organization in the world as a matter of fact We have run neck and neck with you, Vince McMahon, for years, for years, and just for trivia, Vince McMahon, do you know that in 1981, when you were trying to become an announcer, your dad was on the board of directors and voted for me to be the world champion. all have kissed the girls worldwide and made them cry did you see we were every bit the force. we were WCW we lived we breathed we sweat we paid the price to be the best it's never been about the boys it's always been WWF versus WCW in the office. The boys that have gone out there night in and night out doing everything they could to be the very best at what they chose to do in their life. Those boys are here tonight. We are. We're not going anywhere. You can't hold us in your hands and predict our life. We're WCW, we bled and we sweat. When was the last time you wrestled for an hour, cut yourself five times, bled for 45 minutes? When were you there? You weren't. You weren't. You never were in a dressing room on the road. Hands. We're the greatest wrestling company of all time. I want to say it again. You can't control us or our future. And in closing, let me say this. In all my years in this sport, my greatest opponent of this company has been Sting. So tonight, if we're going out, If we're going out of the hideout, Stinger, the Ninja Boy, wants you right here. Because, that's right. Oh my God, he wants Stinger. Sting, 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 my greatest opponent. Sting, it's your last chance. Your last chance to be Sting, 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 Sting.
1: Tension grew high in the locker room on the last Nitro, but when they saw Shane McMahon come out and announced he was the owner of WCW, there was some hope for the wrestlers in the back. Could WCW still be around? The initial intention we heard after the fact was that the World Wrestling Federation planned on still operating WCW as its own separate entity quite possibly it taking over the SmackDown slot and having Raw on Mondays and SmackDown slash Nitro possibly on Thursdays, creating two separate brands and two separate organizations under the WWE umbrella, which was owned by Vince McMahon and, of course, his family. So when Shane McMahon came out, it was thought that WSW would still be alive, just not on Turner television, instead moving over now to WWE television. So after WrestleMania 17 came about in the World Wrestling Federation, quite possibly or arguably the greatest or biggest WrestleMania in the company's history in terms of overall importance, uh, popularity, the whole card, and the ambiance, as this was a celebration of them being on top of the wrestling world, the wrestling world waited patiently for the arrival of WCW on WWE television. In all actuality, it was, at least... What actually happened with the invasion angle? Due to these top stars not being able to invade with WCW due to their contracts, why wouldn't they stay with their contract and pay top dollar to not work? Would you accept a buyout? get paid less money to go now work 300 days a year for the WWE? I don't blame these top stars for not doing so. In turn, the invasion was very lackluster and it lacked the star power it needed to make a full impact. Instead, it wound up that WSW would be merging with ECW to join the Alliance, which was run by Stephanie McMahon and then Paul Heyman. So now the McMahon siblings were teaming up against their father Vince, and this was all done on WWE television. Some say the end of WSW was truly not just on the final Nitro, but on the very first appearance of WCW programming on WWE television on Monday Night Raw, when the main event was Booker T, the world champion, taking on Buff Bagwell. That was known to be a terrible match, which was met with chance of boring, so it seemed based on that one match, that one single match between Booker T and Buff Bagwell, decided to drop you boomer the we were the alignment. We won't go into much detail on the Invasion angle. That's a whole separate podcast, which I'll get into more extensively. What went wrong, what could have been done better, and what effects it had on the whole show, which we'll get into later on, I'm sure, here Beyond the Bell. But the Invasion, when it was a winner-take-all match between the two, and in turn, the WWE, of course, defeating WCW, and now WCW was officially out of business, as well as the ECW brand comprised as the Alliance. Some say the highlight of the invasion angle was the initial Invasion pay-per-view, where it was the first time you could see WSW and ECW talent go head-to-head against WWF talent. But after the Survivor Series, WSW officially died in the eyes of the wrestling fan, but truly, I think, WSW died that very day The question is, what was truly the end of WCW? Was it on the final Nitro, when Shane McMahon came out to announce that he was the owner? Was that truly the end of the true WCW? Was it when the Alliance was killed off at the Survivor Series, when that was the last time we would hear WCW as initials being associated with a separate organization? Or was it even before WCW actually even folded? When Vince Russo arrived to take over for the departed Eric Bischoff? Or was it when David Arquette became WCW World Champion? Or when Vince Russo himself became champion? Nevertheless, no matter how you look at it, whatever date you consider the official end of WCW, it surely was the end of an era. The end of the Monday Night Wars. The end of the rival promotion in professional wrestling, the rival of one of the greatest organizations ever in the history of professional wrestling.
4: WCW was so cool early in the you know the '70s and '80s and '605 in the small buildings. We had so much fun. I sit back here. It's Ted Turner's private office, and I watch what we have come to know as the greatest wrestling program ever put together by anybody, anywhere in this whole world.
3: Turner Broadcasting Vehicle had taken us to a different stratosphere, where people were buzzing about us all over the country. Being in the front of that many people in a frenzy, there's nothing else in life that would compare with that. I made some lifelong friends when I was with WCW and WA. There's a feeling, I go back to when the police get on the TV and say, don't come to Greensboro. It's sold out, don't come. A wrestling match shut down a town. That's a tremendous feeling
5: of accomplishment. As I look back, I take a look at the production values all of a sudden that were brought up. Production wise, we were the first division at Turner to go digital. We were very innovative. Now, because we were live, we were changing certain things as it was online just to make it better.
3: What an electric atmosphere!
5: They created a great competition on Monday night that made Monday a destination
2: for television viewers everywhere. They took the big arena and the fancy TV and the fireworks and all that kind of stuff and then they took the old storylines of good versus evil, big versus small, and they put the whole thing together. And it made it unbelievable.
3: We are number one uncontested. We are WCW.
2: Everything came together. This thing just took off. Nitro helped revolutionize sports entertainment.
3: Monday Nitro, the program that set the standard, is off and running.
5: It took a life on its own. People were noticing the
2: amount of kids that we put smiles on their faces.
3: There
5: was something there on the show for everybody.
3: We still have the greatest wrestling in the world to bring you, for you, the greatest fans in the world.
5: And they really jumped on the bandwagon.
3: I just want to tell each and every one of you here tonight how happy I
4: am
2: to be here with you. We knew that we could do things that nobody ever thought we would do, could do or should do and it would probably work and it did. It was really fun.
5: The audience would have never enjoyed as much great product as they have had it not been for Monday Night Nitro. They were successful. WCW is on top of the mountain. Gosh, for a lot of guys that made a lot of money, kind of launched their careers, took them to a new level. I'm getting paid to do something I absolutely love, and it
2: was pretty amazing. I cut my teeth in WCW, and I'm very thankful I got the chance to go there. They gave me my break. I ran with it. I had a, you know, met a lot of great people.
4: We were sold out arenas night in, night out.
3: An all-time record for professional wrestling in the city of Houston. We're in front of the largest crowd ever to see a professional wrestling event in the state of Missouri.
4: And it was fun.
5: Ted loved wrestling, even to this day. It was his idea to bring it, it was his idea to keep it. And he would still love to have it. Vince McMahon bought my competition.
3: And I still I cannot believe it.
5: That's right. I own WCW.
3: Shaming Man is on Nitro. And I'm here in Panama City Beach, Florida. Standing in a WCW ring.
2: They were cheering for Shaming Man, but at the same time, they were in awe. All- of, of what was happening it's like probably you know if you're watching uh, Michael Jordan's last game you're happy to be seeing him but then on the other hand you know it's going to be his last game so how do you really you know cheer for that
1: at least it wasn't going to just disappear
2: you know that was my biggest concern at the time because I felt like even though it wasn't my company's clearly it wasn't but I felt like it was the legacy to a certain degree a large part of its legacy was mine and there was a lot of me wrapped up in that company you know at least in my own mind
1: maybe not in anybody else's, but in mine And the fact that it still had a life,
2: you
3: know,
1: I felt good about that.
3: That's right. I now own WCW.
4: Shame wasn't going to let the um, legacy of the WCW just die out totally. Everyone was just so amazed that night
2: because it was so uncertain and so groundbreaking and historic, really. And we knew we were witnessing
4: something huge going on. A lot of history... For myself personally, and I had been there longer than anybody, I was glad to see the end come. For myself personally, it was one of the happiest nights of my life.
1: Students, 12 chapters of WCW history. We started from the early days, the formation of the Alliance, the beginning of a legendary organization, to Georgia Championship Wrestling and Jim Crockett Promotions and then the purchase by Ted Turner and Turner Broadcasting. As the Jim Hurd era began in WCW, from the dream booking team by the American Dream Dusty Rhodes, to the cowboy riding in and Bill Watts being placed in charge, then to Ole Anderson, and then the historic move of Eric Bischoff being placed as the executive vice president of world championship wrestling this would lead us to where the big boys play and then the rise of WCW as WCW Monday Nitro is born and the Monday Night Wars began in professional wrestling history that would lead us to the invasion of the new world order and the conversion of Hulk Hogan to Hollywood Hogan as the hostile takeover would consume WCW for years then there was the rise of Goldberg and the streak in WCW, a homegrown star that rose to unparalleled heights in professional wrestling. During this time, tension grew between the New World Order and two factions were born Hollywood and Wolfpack. From celebrities such as Dennis Rodman, Carl Malone, to Jay Leno, WCW was rotting high. But what they did not expect was the fall they would take just shortly after. From Bischoff being pushed out of his executive vice president role, to the hiring of Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara, and the new Nitro being born. Moved from two hours to three, back to two, Nitro was in transition. As WCW geared up for their first ever motion picture ready to rumble to debut, they also suffered as David Arquette became WCW champion. As Bischoff tried to swoop in and purchase WCW to restart the brand, Turner turned their backs on their promotion. AOL Time Warner decided to sell WCW, and now the competition the World Wrestling Federation purchased its rival. What can you say about this historic organization known as World Championship Wrestling? In this 101 series, we cover the monumental moments and the landmarks that took place for World Championship Wrestling. To me, I always will look at WSW as the competition, as I was a true WWF fan. I'm an East Coast guy, I was born in Brooklyn, therefore I will always look up to the WWE as my promotion. I was a WWF guy, I was a Monday Night Raw guy, therefore I looked at WSW as the enemy. Looking back at it now as being a more mature fan with the wealth of knowledge I have obtained over the years now being a journalist, so to speak, in the professional wrestling industry, to also being now a worker as a ring announcer on the independent scene, I look at WCW in a whole different light. They were another option, another avenue for you to watch wrestling. It gave you a different style of wrestling to watch. Take out the Russo era and him trying to make it like the WWF. W.W. gave you that Southern style wrestling. It gave you the p- the pure athleticism of the wrestlers. It gave you actual in-ring content. Sure, they tried to make it flashy. Gave you some entertainment value. Created some interesting storylines. But it was more of the wrestling promotion. The WWF was glitz and glamour, the entertainment side. Muhammad Ali, WrestleMania, celebrities galore. W.W. was wrestling. It will surely be missed because competition is what makes businesses. Companies thrive on competition. It's been documented. Vince McMahon thrives on competition. That's when he works at its best. You cannot look at TNA Impact Wrestling right now as competition. They're doing a third of the numbers of what the WWE does with a third of the resources. The WWE now is a juggernaut. WSW was the one promotion that gave them a run for their money. I surely miss WSW. I wish it was back to this very day. I wish. I know certain things happen, and as a result, you couldn't have a separate owner for WSW. Of course, pulling the television ruined their chances. And of course, it was a couple years, or a short time after WSW ended, to when TNA debuted, and then it took them a while to receive the Spike TV deal they had, as they suffered some growing pains, but that's a whole other story. But... I wish the WWF took WCW seriously and created a separate entity. The WWE created a brand split due to WCW being involved. They wanted two separate organizations, but instead of WWF and WCW, it became Raw and SmackDown. But we all can relive WCW in our archive footage and DVDs. I would suggest going back and watching the rise and fall of WCW as you get sort of the, the WWE's take on what happened. There is some pretty good footage in there, and some pretty good content, but that's the visualization side of the history of WCW, you can also watch the history of Starcade, the history of Clash of the Champions, there are going to be countless and endless DVDs to be distributed, the Best of Money Nitro Volumes 1 and 2, Volume 2 soon to be debuting this year in 2013, but there's countless hours of footage in which you can relive WCW, and relive the quote-unquote glory days of professional wrestling and the Monday Night War. Whether you love or hate him, WCW made an impact in professional wrestling. A lot of people missed WCW as it seemed when the acquisition took place, not everyone from WCW jumped ship over to the WWF as the numbers showed. There's been a decline in wrestling, and it's been pretty stagnant at the 3.0 mark in terms of ratings for Raw. So what happened to those 6-7 numbers that wrestling was doing in a combined 10 number between both programs? seemed like once WSW died, a lot of the interest of the wrestling fan. That was the impact that WSW made. Certain wrestling fans would not return to watch wrestling if it wasn't World Championship Wrestling. From Gordon Sully, Bob Cottle, to Tony Schiavone, Bobby the Brain Heenan, WSW has seen some extraordinary announcers come in and out. The talent, not to mention from Nature Boy Ric Flair, to Hulk Hogan, the NWO to the Four Horsemen, the groups that were involved in WSW were legendary. You cannot deny the historic achievements that WSW made in this industry. As we conclude this 101 course of the History of of World Championship Wrestling. We could look back and be thankful for the moments and times we were able to witness and share with many fellow fans and superstars of WCW and experience so many memories that will stand the test of time and that have shaped this professional wrestling industry forever. Thank you, WCW.
0: Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Gamefly is the best way to rent and buy games. There's no late fees. You can keep them as long as you want. We are saving money and we're playing more games. If you're a gamer, go to Gamefly.com right now and start your free 30-day trial today. Now offering movie rentals. You're listening to the Retro Wrestling Podcast, Beyond the Bell. You can listen to Beyond the Bell on iTunes, Player.FM, the SNS Radio Network, Podbay.FM, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and our official website, BTBcast.com. Connect socially on Facebook and Twitter at BTBcast. Watch retro videos on our official YouTube channel, BTBcast Network. Questions, comments, and suggestions can be sent to contact at BTB becast.com Go old school with Beyond the Bell.
1: As we conclude WCW 101, what does that mean for the rest of the season? Well, like I said previously, season one of the brand new Beyond the Bell... Covers World Championship Wrestling. So, in the episodes and weeks to come, we'll dive deeper into the history of some of the greatest pay per views in WCW history, such as Halloween Havoc and the granddaddy of them all, Starcade. We'll cover the relationship of the superstation TBS and WCW. We will take an in depth look at the television title and we'll relive some of the greatest moments. ...in the promotion's history. But next week, on the next installment of Beyond the Bell... ...we cover the music behind WCW... ...the greatest entrance themes of World Championship Wrestling... ...the sounds from the South. Congratulations to my old school students. You have officially graduated WCW 101. You are now prepared to take your education to the next level as we break down WCW even further. Bust open those boom boxes for our next edition. Until then, this is your old school professor, Sean Beckerman, signing off. Thanks
0: for listening to Beyond the Bell. Remember to always keep it old school, my friends.